it's so easy to read chapter six and seven, and we're not going to get into chapter seven, and it's really the discourse of, we want to focus in on that next week. But we look at what he's communicating, and it's so easy to just gloss over that. And then we look at this time of year, and we think about Christmas, and we talk about God loving the world so much that he, that he gave Jesus. And, and love is a powerful thing, obviously. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that it's the greatest of all the gifts is love. But it's, what is that love? What is it that grips Stephen's heart? And what was it that gripped the heart of the apostles? And when you really think about this, it, it's the forgiveness of God more than anything else that they began to comprehend. I think Jesus said it best when he said that those that love much have been forgiven much. And because we talk about love, right? And the world talks about love, that all we need is love and love. And you go, and, and it seems like such a, a simple concept. You go, but how is love made manifest? How is it made known? And obviously the way that the Bible teaches it is that love is made manifest through forgiveness because it's forgiveness that opens the door for everything. We think about what we're talking about, whether in communion today we celebrate, you know, if you really meditate on the new covenant, right? And the Bible says that, that the New Testament represents, as Jesus said, the new covenant that, that's in his blood. And what was his blood shed for? It was shed for the forgiveness of our sin, that we could, you and I, think about this. Stephen isn't an apostle, as we'll read today, He's a deacon. He was a, a person who was chosen because of their faithfulness and their love for God. But they weren't, it wasn't anything different than you and I today. He wasn't one of the 12. But God did something amazing in and through his life that we see here in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. But it's nothing that God can't do in and through your life and my life as well. And you go, so what motivated Stephen? What was it that we read his words, right? You go, oh, he's just quoting the words of Jesus. And you go, but he, but to the point that he's willing to die, right? And you don't go, the reason he did because he loved Jesus. And you go, but why did he love Jesus? And, and my question maybe for me, for you today is why do you love Jesus? What is it that you really love about Jesus? And then we think deep about that and we meditate upon that because I know for myself, and as I study this and just come to this fresh, awareness and understanding what I love about God is the forgiveness that he's offered me in Christ that's made a way for me to come to him. To think about this, that in the Old Testament, under the law, who could come to God? Only the high priest, right? The guy that you would think that, of course, he, he deserves to get to go to God because look at the way that he lives his life. He's so high, so mighty, so separate from all of us. Once he has this pleasure, this luxury of going into the very presence of God, into the most holy place, and everybody else stays on the outside. And then Isaiah says that God's going to do something amazing, that he's going to take, in the days to come, he's going to take our hearts of stone, and he's going to give us a heart of flesh. And you go, what does that mean? You go, it's the fulfillment of what Pentecost would be, is that, that God would come and he would live within our hearts that we could know God intimately, that we could enjoy sweet fellowship with God. And, but how can we do that? Because obviously none of us warrant that. And even for many that are here today, I, I love what Greg Glory so well said that 
sin will keep you from the Bible and the Bible will keep you from sin. And when you look at your life, sometimes you look at it much the same way that the Jews did in the Old Testament. You look at it through the law. You go, I don't feel worthy today because I did this or I did this and I did this. And that's because we don't comprehend or really fully understand God's forgiveness and his grace, what he's made possible. Where the writer of Hebrews says, because of what Jesus did, the only merit that you and I'll ever have to come before God is because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And to be able then to understand that and comprehend it, that you've been forgiven. Do you really get that today? And as we receive communion, that you are forgiven. And we talk about this all the time, and it's not a, it's not a, a, a statement of that cheapens sin, as, as Paul taught us in the book of Romans. He said, where sin abounds, grace did all the more. And that doesn't make it then a license for us to sin, right? It should have the opposite effect that we go, because God has loved us and he's forgiven us, that I don't want to do things that would displease him. And I want to do things that would show my appreciation and my love for God and what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. And so as I, I look at this here today and I'm going, I wish to God that for all of us that we would comprehend in a deeper way really the power of God's forgiveness and what it does in our life when we really are able to wrap our minds around it and it impacts us because then, as the writer of Hebrews said, then we would come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need, which is, I don't know about you, mine's every day. And we wouldn't have this fear like, oh, I can't come to God. And like I said, and many of us have that because we go, God, I did this and this, but your merit to come to God is never on the basis of what you've done. It's always and always will forever be on the basis of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that should just begin to overwhelm us because I, I was sharing yesterday, I, I told someone, you know, and that we'll say this even to people. Parents sometimes say it to children. Friends will say it to, to, to friends. Sometimes people say it to people that they've just had contact with that they've forgiven. They go, I forgive you. They go, but I'm very disappointed in you. And you look at that and you go, or I love you, but yes, I'm disappointed in you. And we project that onto God. God looks at us and he's somehow he's disappointed with us, but he still loves us anyway. And I go, that's the person who does not understand the forgiveness of God. Because with God, again, you don't have a past. That's the beauty of justification, right? It just, it's overwhelming to us to think that when God looks at your account, he looks at your account that he sees perfect righteousness on that account. Perfect righteousness, meaning as if he's looking at his own son, is how he sees you and me. And you go, and that is what I want you to think about when you think about Stephen. Just, again, someone who is, you might say, second generation, right? He wasn't one of the apostles. He was somebody who came to faith because of someone else's faith, the same way that you and I came to faith, right? And yet, wow, here's a guy that has comprehended forgiveness. Now, does he comprehend it completely? Let me go, no, and I'll share that with you today. But he's growing in that. And my hope and my prayer today is that you and I would grow in that as well. In Acts chapter 6, I titled this message this morning, I titled it Beauty Secrets. And it, and obviously for good reason, because of the fact that when I look at Stephen's life, it says that when they looked at his face, that his face was like that of an angel, right? You know, and when you think of an angel, what, what, what's the facial expressions that you think of when you think of an angel? What, what comes to mind when you, pictures that you've seen of angels? 
Any idea? See, I was raised Catholic. It was always a, like a baby's face, right? It was this really soft, chubby little face. And you might think of that today. I don't really want a chubby baby's face. Or it was like an angel that was really ticked off, right? And you were going to, you were going to pay for it. You go, but that's not the face that they saw when you, and I'm, I'm doing things to my computer while I'm doing this because my grandchildren play with it. And so I have Disney channel popping up and I've got them writing me notes and stuff. So I have to literally shut everything down. I should make sure I do that every time, but I forget. But I, I want you to think about this morning when I think about beauty secrets, because Luke, he's a doctor, right? He's a physician. So you think he notices things about people. He would look at you and go, you don't look very good. You look pale. You look like, and, and he draws this out. Remember, and, and this is always after the fact, right? He's not writing it down as it's happening. He's actually, after it's happening, he's going back to give an account. So he wants us to hold on to certain things. And obviously it was really important to him that we understood that in the midst of this trial, and he's under tremendous persecution right here, he's standing before the most powerful religious court in the world, right? You think he'd be shaken in his, but he's not an apostle. It's one thing if you, you invite the apostles, right? Yes, I'm the apostle Peter here. And you go, no, this is Stephen. This is just a normal guy. This is just a me and you. And here he is, and his face is like an angel. He's got peace, like a river, just all over him. And I, when I look at that and I go, wow, there's something that God would have us understand with regard to what was going on in Stephen's life. What I do is I start looking at that and I go, wow, that's like God's beauty secret, right? There's beauty secrets that you could, you ever seen those like, and you'll read them and people go, yes, we have an ancient Bible beauty secret, right? All you have to do is take this worm and cut it in three pieces, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You just go, what are you talking about? But I looked this up yesterday. I thought it was so funny. These were ancient secrets. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to go into the detail of them. I'm just going to, there's eight of them here. But I was cracking up thinking of this. It said, look at this, the snail crawl facial. Okay. These are things that people actually pay for beauty secrets, women predominantly, maybe men too. The slap in the face facial tightens the pores, right? Fire facial. Now I have to at least explain a little bit of that. They put a towel that's been soaked in alcohol and they light it on fire somehow on the outside and hope it doesn't go all the way through to the inside, but the heat opens the pores. You can see it extrapolates debris and then you put cold water on it, like putting out the fire, right? And then that closes the pores, right? How about this one? The bird poop facial. That probably happened by accident, right? It's like, hey, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. It's things get invented that way. Like some lady was walking down the street and got home and all of a sudden that spot where the bird poop was, it was like, and I don't want to go any further than that, okay? The bizarre leech facial. Yeah, some of you have heard of that, right? The snake venom facial. I don't know. The Dracula-inspired facial. I just want you to understand the Kardashians were, were this was their... And what that was is they take your own blood, they separate the red cells from the platelets, and then they use the platelets and they inject it in areas that need. And then the bee sting facial, I guess that's the first Botox that ever, <laughs> I don't know. It's much, you go, these are like ancient beauty secrets. And yet we have all kinds of things in scripture. I'm reminded of that statement that says, 
beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness goes clear to the bones. And there really is a, a truth in that. The Proverbs, don't we, we bring this out? Proverbs 31, 30, it says, charm is deceitful. What beauty is in vain, but, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And there, there's an inward beauty. And that's what Stephen has. It's an inward beauty. And I don't, and I don't mean this kiddingly. It really is a beauty secret. Most of us have come in contact with people that maybe live on the street or they've lived a really hard life and you can see it in their face. Okay. You, you can look at them and go, they've lived a, they've lived a hard life and, and, and there's something about that. And then there's people, I remember the first time that I went to Israel and I was looking at the, the just the people, just people watching. And, um, I noticed a couple things. One, that a lot of the Israeli women didn't wear makeup. We're seeing a, a change as the culture becomes more secularized. But then it was just like, it was just a natural beauty. There was just a, a natural beauty. And so I remember we, Randy and Anita took us to this kind of open market where you could buy herbs and stuff. And so I'm talking to one of the ladies at the thing there and I go, man, I go, you have beautiful skin. I go, I'm going to get my wife something here. I go, what do you, do you use some, there's something here. And she's telling me all the Dead Sea products that they have, put mud on your face. And to me, that was always a song. I didn't know that it was a beauty secret, but, but, but for the most part, they go, it's just a confidence that comes from, for them, it was being Jewish. It was that to believe in that they were God's chosen people. And it reminded me then of what it is like when, when you meet somebody and they have a glow about them, right? You go, are you in love? Are you in love? Because what does it do? There's something about when you're in love or something that when you know that you're love. And I think that there, all these components are important for us today. When you think about Stephen's life, it's not just one thing. It's a combination of many things that his, this beauty, whether it's male or female in that, that, that extent. It comes from a personal, intimate relationship with God. And when we think about the book of Acts, that's what God wants for us, right? That's one of the reasons that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, so that we could know the presence of God always in our life. Again, probably the greatest one chapter in all the Bible for me is always going to be Romans chapter 8. To think we start with at the beginning, there's no condemnation, and it ends, the, the book ends as I taught that to you, was that and nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And to know that love, there's something that takes away the stress. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have stressful things in life. It doesn't mean that we're not going to go through difficult things. But it's, there's a peace that can be there in the midst of it. And I think that this is what Luke is drawing out through this, because he actually, we won't get into it today, but you can read ahead chapter 7, because ultimately he, it's where he will be martyred. But it, here it says, but his face going into, not even at the end, it's all the way through at the very beginning when this happens, he already has this expression on his face like that of an angel. And it's a deep-rooted peace. It reminds me again of Isaiah who says that they, that God keeps them in perfect peace, what he said, whose heart is stayed upon him. And I think that's the message this morning that as we get into this, I hope the Lord brings to you. But let's just pray and we'll jump into this. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to study it together. And Lord, as we do, that, Lord, you would teach us what you want us to know. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here in this place, and thank you that you live within us and you 
bring to remembrance all the things. I love it when we teach the word. It's not just the, the Bible passages that I'll bring from this pulpit, but Lord, by your spirit, you quicken passages in the hearts of your people to remind them, to encourage them. Hey, hold on to this one, or yeah, this one goes with this one. And I love how you do that. And you give us what we need when we need it. And today, as we celebrate communion, Lord, I pray it would be a sweet time of fellowship for each of us that we just be reminded it's not by works that any man should boast. It's by your grace through faith is that you made it possible. We believe it and we trust it and we act upon it. And may we do that today. And may every day throughout the month of December be special for us because, Lord, this is uh, the time of year that we celebrate. It's a Christian holiday. It's where we celebrate the fact that you were born into this world to save us from our sins. It really is about forgiveness and help us think about that. And one of the great blessings then of the gifts that we can give, you think of the world today, it's more than just needing love. What people need is forgiveness. They could just know that they could be forgiven and how powerful that would be. And Lord, if we're able to be instruments of, of your love through forgiveness this holiday, Lord, use us that way, that we could look at somebody and say, hey, you're forgiven. That's what made the gospel so powerful. They, they knew their sins just like we know our sins. And to say, because God loves you, he's made a way for you to find forgiveness through his son, through Jesus Christ. Not through the law, not by trying to keep a bunch of rules, but through a relationship. And so draw close to him and allow him to draw close to you. And that's what we want to do. And so we thank you for today and look forward to what you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. When we started the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there's a natural outline, right, that, that we're just following here. And I shared with you last week, we've come to the end of the first aspect of that in, in Acts 1, 8, where it said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. And then he started in Jerusalem. And so there in, in verse 7, he comes to the end in chapter 6 of Jerusalem. Now it's going to move out into Judea and Samaria. And then when the apostle Paul, Saul, who gets saved, it's going to head off into the uttermost parts of the world there. It's an exciting aspect of studying God's word. You look at it and you go, okay, hey, this is the beauty of redundancy. God, he tells us what he's going to do. And then we just watch it and we go, okay. And I love that because God's telling us, right? He's going, that's the beauty of prophecy is, you know, that history told in advance. So we already know how the story ends, right? We don't have to get fearful. You just look at how many people are living and walking in fear today because of the things happening in the world. And Jesus goes, I told you these things are going to happen. It's not the end, but the end is near and I'm coming. And when I do, I'll make it all right. I'll reestablish my throne. There'll be a thousand years of bliss upon this earth. And then it will be a new heaven and a new earth. And man, all the former things will have passed away and behold, all things will become new. And you go, it has a happy ending for those that what? put their hope and their trust in Jesus. And yes, are there things that are going to happen along the way? And you go, absolutely. But we can have peace. And that's what he wants us. We can have joy. We think about it at Christmas time, joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has come. And he hasn't just come once, but now, Pentecost, he comes into the heart of, of every believer who places their hope and their trust in him. Verse 7, you know, I shared this with you last week. It's what if you read commentary, it's considered a summary statement of the outline of, of their, you could say, of the book of Acts then. And so in verse 7, it said this, said, so God's message continued to spread 
The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So what was the message? Again, the message of forgiveness. Don't miss that, is that people could know that their sins were forgiven. They knew that they had failed. Remember, the gospel was first to who? The Jew, right? The Jew who had what? The law of Moses, 613 laws. And when that wasn't enough, they had 22 volumes. Think about that. On top of that, rabbinical interpretation of the laws of Moses. There was failure at every point. And so what were they going to do? That's what God promised. So there was coming a day. That day was coming when Jesus Christ was born into this world, that he would be the fulfillment of God's law. Not me, not you. And he would keep it perfectly. And because he would do that, then he could offer us what we could never find on our own was forgiveness apart from him. And that message of forgiveness, again, permeated everything that the apostles would go about proclaiming. And it's why people were flocking to it. Think about why would thousands of people come to Jesus, right? You go, they just hurt. You go, no, they knew that their sins could be forgiven. If you really comprehended that your sins can be forgiven, because if you think about it today, the sin that is habitual in our life is because of something we've done in the past, and so we judge ourselves, or we think that God won't forgive us, or God won't receive us, or I'm worthless, you buy into the lie of the enemy, and so what does it do? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, you might say, over and over again. But when you understand forgiveness... You understand that you have no past. Like I said, if you went to God today and you go, oh God, he's going, let me show you your, let's pull up your account. And he goes, and it's perfect righteousness. And you go, but, and you go, but what? The blood of Jesus covered your sin. That's why communion is so special to sit there and hold it. And we think about the bread and it being discolored. We talk about unleavened bread, that he was sinless, right? And then we see it's perforated, that it was his body was pierced for our transgressions, different colors. It was bruised for our inequities. And you go, and I think about those things. You're over, overwhelmed by what the goodness of God is so. It's not folks, oh, I did this. It's not about you. It's about what he did for you. And there's freedom in that. And it was that message, the gospel that continued to go forth and it was transforming people's lives. And I pray that it has the same effect today, that God would take, again, our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And so the gospel, that good news, why is it good news? The Bible says, for the wages of sin is what? Death, right? And who's sin? For all have what? Sin. We're all guilty before God. It says, but the free gift of God is what? Is life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And people go, that's too good to be true. You go, no, it, it sounds too good to be true, but it's not. That's why it's good news. That's why it's the gospel. And that's what they were proclaiming was there was forgiveness made possible. And we see Stephen is going to exemplify that. And so much, I'm going to jump ahead here just a little bit, so much that you're going to see in Acts chapter 7, because it says that there was one guy named Saul who was there and he was holding the cloaks or the coats of the people who was stoning Stephen. So in the true sense, you could say Saul was the one who called for the death of Stephen. And what he saw 
was the same thing that the Roman soldier saw when Jesus was on the cross. Remember, though, all the people came, the religious leaders, the people on the highways and byways, they, they jeered at Jesus, right? They reviled him, right? And it says, but he reviled not. When they cursed at him, he didn't curse back. You've been studying the gospel. So what did Jesus say from the cross? He looked out and he said, what? Father, forgive them, right? It's always about forgiveness. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And so much that act right there got through this, the hardest of hearts in the sense of this Roman centurion who is the one there crucifying Jesus, who looks up at him and says, surely this is the son. You know that expression that says we're never more like God than when we forgive, right? And we're never more like the devil when we don't. And so then in Acts chapter 7, like I said, here's Stephen. They're stoning him. He's got this angelic face. And he too says, Father, forgive them. And I think that's what haunted the Apostle Paul. I think that's what stuck at his heart was that forgive. And finally it broke through. I don't know about you, but I know about me. It wasn't going to hell that was the thing that got my attention with regard to Jesus, it was the fact that he died for me. When it finally got through to my heart and my mind that I was forgiven, I could be forgiven of my sin because of what Jesus did, that's what makes Jesus appealing. That's what makes Christianity appealing. That's what makes Christians appealing. Think about the, the problems that face the church. The church is nothing more than people today, is unforgiving people. The people who claim to what? To love God the most and love Jesus. You can fill all the law and the prophet is love God and love people. And you go, but how is that love personified? And you go, forgiveness. Think about it. The people that you love the most in this life, you forgive the most. Because you just go, I choose. It's a choice. I choose to forgive them. It's not that they're perfect. You go, I only hang around perfect people, Pastor Mike. People that don't do anything wrong. They never commit any sin. You go, no, you just choose to forgive them. And because you choose to forgive them, they probably love you. That's happens. You go, so we play, unfortunately, God with a lot of people. So I forgive them, but you know, what is forgiveness? Psalm 103 of God's forgiveness, he says, I've forgiven you as far as the East is from the West and your sin, I what? I remember it no more. First Corinthians 13, Paul drives it a little closer to home. Love keeps what? No record of wrong. You've met people, they, they talk so much about loving God, and man, they keep great records of what went wrong, and they're, they're sharing that with everybody else. And you go, and the, the saddest thing is not realizing, you know, that in the same measure that you forgive, Jesus said the same measure you're forgiven, right? That's a pretty deep. <laughs> well, Lord, I thought I was forgiven of that. You, know, you would have been, but you just wouldn't forgive them. So we put it on your account. Wait, I thought I was justified. You go, you are unto salvation, but rewards, it's a whole different story. So it's an interesting thing that as you start walking through this and looking at, at Stephen's life here, and yet Stephen ultimately, like I said, was used so much of God in it so powerful that I, like I said, I believe that it, it brought the apostle Paul who was Saul at that time. And then you look at Philip and 
as we look at this, what's going to unfold here. Philip's going to take, as we go through the book of Acts, as it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, he's going to take it to Gaza and Caesarea there. And that's when Saul of Tarsus is going to get saved. And next thing, Paul is going to be called of God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's going to begin to take the gospel all over the place at that point. And so we look here in verse 8, Excuse me. Look at this in verse 8 here with me in Acts chapter 6. And it says, And Stephen, he says, a man full of God's grace and power, says, performed amazing miracles and signs amongst the people. Now, remember, he wasn't an apostle, right? He's just someone who's what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, that was a condition that we just saw to become a deacon, right? Was someone of good reputation, full of the of the Spirit and full of wisdom, right? So he he's full of the Holy Spirit. It says, but one day some men from the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called, started debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, um, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. And you, you'll understand that Tarsus, where Paul is from Cilicia. So there's a connection here. And it's interesting that Paul wasn't the first, or Saul wasn't the first person who was saved there. So the Holy Spirit's really moving in a very profound way. One of the things that's interesting when you study this historically, in Jerusalem, obviously, it was the place of the temple, right? And that's where sacrifices were offered. But and as I shared with you last week, there was hundreds of priests who came to faith because there was priests that served in the temple there. Along with the temple, there was also synagogues where all these different denominations, you might say, different sects, different people that came from different parts of the world, spoke different languages and have different traditions and things. It's believed that there was about 480 synagogues at the time in Jerusalem. And remember, when Jesus came, he said, when he, in speaking of the temple, that he came to do what? To break down the walls of separation and make us all one in Christ Jesus. So there was lots of division during Jesus' time in the Jewish regions there. And you think about what they did in the synagogues, they would pull to their own if they were from a certain part of the world, whether it was the foods, the traditions, the songs, and their twist on things. Same way that we look at within the church today, maybe denominations, they get a little twist here and a little twist there of that. And, and as they did, there was this one who was called the freedmen, and that was a, a synagogue that was comprised of, they were ex-slaves. Uh, they were people that were made free, family members of, of slaves that had been set free. So they called this the, the synagogue of the free freedmen. If you remember when Pompey, the general of the Romans, he took a, a, an enormous amount of different people from really the areas of probably North Africa, Asia Minor there and made them, them personal slaves in the city of Rome. And eventually they were set free and they made their way back to Jerusalem. And so they established a synagogue here. And that's what Luke is pointing out here. So we're told that they come from, it would be in North Africa, you know, Cyrene, Alexandria there in Egypt, and also from Cilicia. And again, like I said, that's where the city of Tarsus is located. That's where Paul would have come from. So there's a good chance that Paul could have been there actually debating Stephen we don't know that for a fact, but there's a pretty good chance that maybe he was here and he was debating Stephen as he uh, shared. And yet the synagogue there in Cilicia was probably one that the Apostle Paul attended himself. Though he was born a Roman citizen, he was freeborn uh, because that was the synagogue that was in his hometown. 
probably pretty safe to say that he was there at that time. Verse 10 goes on in Acts 6, and it says, and none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit in which Stephen spoke. And, and you've got to love this because, again, earlier we read that here's, you know, Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, right? The, the most powerful, most educated men of Israel and Jerusalem there. And they look at them and they were dumbfounded by how they shared and what they shared. And they said, they said of Peter and John, they said, they were uneducated men, but they had what? They had been with Jesus, right? They had been with Jesus. And really, it's the same thing that we see that's taken place here. He's not just been with Jesus, but the Holy Spirit has been poured out. He is what, as we saw, he's of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, that application of knowledge. And so, all you know, to this. And one of the things I love about this is it's not so much about the acts of the apostles, or it's not even the acts of, you could say, Stephen here. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's people who are living in submission to God, that are looking to God and trusting God, that God does his greatest work in and through. And they, I love what it says. They couldn't stand against, or in some of your translations, they couldn't resist. So what happens? What happens when someone is that you don't agree with is standing before you and says they could not stand against or resist his teaching. It happens all the time. We're in a political season, right? What do you do? We just saw it. Did you, anybody see the Ron DeSantis-Gavin Newsom debate last week? doesn't matter which side of the coin you're on there. When you don't like necessarily the factual thing that the other person says, it's, they say it's deflect and then make a personal attack. Did you see how that happens? Instead of going, hey, let's just make this on the merits of our argument, you go, you deflect it to something else, and then you attack the person personally. It, it's exactly what's taking place here in the life of Stephen. They can't argue the facts of what Stephen is saying, so then they twist it. Then in this sense, they take it even worse than that. And we, and we saw that. It was reported in the news. You have people just lie. They go, we, what do they do now? They'll do a thing, and they, how many Pinocchios, right? That's the polite way they go, he lied. She lied. They go, oh, I got seven Pinocchios and no one even cares. They just go, oh, because they go, what? That's just commonplace, right? That's just, that's just what you do as a politician. It's sad, but it's deflect and slander. Verse 11 goes on. It says, and because they couldn't argue the facts, it says, they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Now, did he ever do that? No. It says, this roused the people and the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. It says, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. I like what uh, one commentator said, because obviously Saul gets saved, right? And Luke writes this after the fact that probably he and Paul actually talked, and Paul's telling them, hey, this is what went down. Because how would Luke know this unless somebody told him? It probably was the Apostle Paul, because he was part of it. He's like, hey, this is what we were doing, man. We were, it was a smear campaign because we didn't like what Stephen said, and we couldn't come up with anything to really argue against it. We just decided to make some false charges against him. And what were the false charges? They said he speaks blasphemous words against God. He speaks blasphemous words against Moses and the law. And then he speaks blasphemous words against 
the temple of God as well. And didn't they do the same thing to Jesus? They did the exact same thing. So it's not even it's not even a new trick that they're trying here. Verse 14 goes on, it says, and we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the custom of Moses handed down to us. Remember, didn't Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again? What was he talking about? Was he talking about the literal temple? They go, no. And they knew what he was talking about. But what did they say? Well, he said, destroy this temple. See, he said, destroy this temple. And so that, that's what Stephen said. And they want to destroy the temple. There's a lie. Twisting the words. Have you ever had your words twisted? I've never had mine. No. No, but we all have, right? And we've twisted other people's words. How many are married here? Yeah. That's not what I said. That's what I heard. That's what matters. So you go, but that's not what I said. What's that? What I said is not what you heard, and what you think you heard is not what I meant. And, and that's the thing with relationships, right? So they deliberately twisted Jesus' words to say that he was going to destroy the temple here. And they're saying that Stephen is spreading that same lie where they go, which was a lie. Stephen never said that. Stephen never went about those things. But what did Stephen do when he taught? And that's the thing as you look through, especially get into chapter seven here, he taught that Jesus was God. He, he didn't mince words. He didn't back down from that. And that's one of the things that we can't be afraid of, that Jesus is God. That's what happened when Jesus was born into this world, that the in the beginning was the Word, what? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became what? Flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of God. We got to touch God. He came in human flesh. And people that don't have to like that, you go, but He's there, there's, as Scripture says, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. If Jesus isn't going to save you, there's no method. You're not going to get saved according to the law, right? The wages of sin is what? It's death, and we've all broken the law. And so, again, the only hope we have is Jesus Christ, and that's why it's called good news. That's why it's the gospel. Stephen taught that Jesus was greater than Moses, and to the Jews, this was blasphemy, but it's true. Jesus was greater than Moses. Was Jesus greater than the temple? Yeah, and Stephen will teach that. Jesus affirmed that himself. And again, so they're accusing Stephen here of threatening to destroy the temple, which ultimately to them was just complete blasphemy. And then really what was important to them was all their customs in Stephen taught that Jesus is greater than all the Jewish customs and traditions, that everything that they were doing was pointing to Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of it all. And yet it, it's important to note, like I said, Stephen never taught against Moses or God or the temple. He just <laughs> taught that Jesus is God and that he superseded Moses and that he was the fulfillment of the law. And regarding the temple, Jesus never spoke against the, the temple. He never spoke against the holy place. What did he speak against? The religious leaders of the temple who were using the temple to keep people from God. But he was never against the temple. Did Jesus go to the temple? Absolutely. Again, so these are things that were twisted. He had his words twisted. False accusations were brought against him. And then verse 15, and it says, and at this point, everyone in the high council, they stared at Stephen. 
Okay, so they've heard all these lies. Here's Stephen. So picture Stephen in this moment. Right? He's just done a tremendously good thing, right? He's helped these Hellenistic widows and taken care of them. He's been chosen by this council to help people because of his reputation, because he's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then immediately they attack him. Isn't that how the devil works? You try to do something good. Man, it's like to do what? To shut you down, to stop you from doing the good that God has called you to do. And so here's Stephen standing before them. Like I said, the most educated, most powerful men in the Jewish religion. And it appears that he's lost Stephen's popular support and he's being falsely accused people. Would you blame Stephen at this moment if all of a sudden his face became angry? Would you blame him? No. What if his face started quivering? If you were standing before 70 of the most powerful men in Israel, and you, it's like the Supreme Court, but with 70 men on it, you go, you, your face might quiver a little bit, right? You might be a little fearful. Would it be surprising if Stephen's face turned pale? We go, no, we, we would think all that. You go, but what happened to his face? And this is what's so amazing to me, because we have something. They go, he speaks against Moses and he speaks against the law, right? These are guys that knew the word of God, right? They should have known there was something in scripture that speaks of another guy, a guy named Moses, who goes up on Mount Sinai and has what? Intimacy with God, right? He stands before God and receives the Ten Commandments, right? And then what happened when he came down? I always like Charlton Heston when he comes off. That's such a great scene. If you ever watch the Ten Commandments, his face, right? Because it's glowing, but he's got this look like he's rum dumb, right? Because he's just, and, he, and it, it's such a great face because he's, he, he's seen God. And, but Moses put a veil on and you go, why? Because that veil was fading because the law was fading, right? It was going away. And yet they would have, they could have read that and said, hey, there's a time when in Jewish history where another guy, he had a glowing face. And why did he have a glowing face? Because he had come from the very presence of God. And I think about that today for me and you. There's the beauty industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. I just read you the weird extent people will go to have a beautiful face, right? The things that they will do to themselves. And God's given us something here. You go, man, you want a really pretty face? And we already know, how we've seen it work in our own lives. It happened yesterday. Chandler and Keelan got married. They said right here, Man, I'm telling you, she has looks about her. I was telling her, man, she's going to pretty much get her way. Chandler's like going to be a puppy in this girl's life. She has an ability, like a lot of women do, to be able to give you that look. She's just, okay, what do you want, honey? And I am watching her. She's looking at him. Man, they're just getting started, you know? But it's, it's a, that beautiful face that I know that I love. I am my beloved. You think about that. And to feel love and you can see it. You go, there's a glow about your face. I can see you're in love. And you go, and Stephen in cultivating this, you, you and I can have the same thing. There can be a look about your face that you go, man, can our, so what have you been doing? You go, just spending time with Jesus. And I'm not talking about it in this religious fashion. Yeah, Pastor Roy. Oh, I'd really like to help. 
so wore out. Me and Jesus. I spend hours and I seek his face and I spend time. It's, it's like that. You go, really? You go, what's it doing for you? I don't know. But then you just meet people and they're just going, man, I just had this wonderful time with the Lord today. I was just praying. I was, Lord showed me this. And, and then people get jealous. Of that, right? But that's Stephen. Stephen's just a guy that's cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can see it. You don't just hear it. You go, it has a, a physical impact. Same way I asked you, can you look at somebody who maybe lives on the street? Somebody who's lived a really hard life and look at them and go, yeah, this, it's messed up. And you go, yeah, you can't. And here's somebody who spends time in the presence of God. Remind me of Exodus 34, 29. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. Stephen's face reflected the glory of God in the same way that Moses' face did. And again, you'd think that these guys would have made that connection, but they didn't. I like what Charles Spurgeon addressing his students concerning ministry, he said this. He says, men, when you teach on heaven, he says, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a smile on your lips. He says, and when you teach on hell, your normal face will do. And it's so true. You go, when we talk about heaven, is it something that is exciting? Is it, does it mean something? Or is it, is it the, repent, everybody's going to hell. Everybody's going, you go, that doesn't sound like good news. Now, does that lead to the good news? Absolutely. But what is that message without the good news? That's just bad news. A lot of Christians have got the bad news down. We, we need to get the good news down. Yes. Again, somebody was sharing with me yesterday. They go, yeah, John 3.16. God, they go, but they forget to read after that, that those who don't believe have already been judged, right? And you go, yeah. So the goal here is to come to Jesus and allow him to wash you. I think about that. They go, I was reading these beauty secrets yesterday as I was studying this, I was cracking up, I was reading through this. I go, man, I could spend a whole service on telling people cut through the chase and just wash your face with water. Every one of the places that I read, they go, yes, water. It's about hydration. And I'm just laughing. I'm like, hydration. I go, I'm thinking if I understand this, that's just water. Wash your face. Yeah. And they go, and use hot water. Hot water does what? Anybody's ever used hot water to wash your face? What does it do? It, yeah, it opens the pores, right? And then they go, and then when you get done, if you want to close the pores and you want to have really tight face and you don't want to have wrinkles and everything, they go, what you should do is use ice cubes. Take ice cubes and rub them on your face. I'm laughing because this is just water. Water. Yeah, you could save yourself thousands of dollars, but we buy into the lie. Oh, we found the fountain of you. If you've got this. And I think about being clean with God, right? If you confess your sins, he what? He washes you. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I'd ask you today, men and women alike, do you want to, do you desire a younger looking face maybe? Would you be interested in taking years off your face? How much would you pay? How much would you be willing to pay to have your face look like an angel today? Think about that. Who? Not the mad angel, Pastor Mike, not the chubby little baby angel, but Stephen, I want that glow. Yeah, like I said, Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful, beauty's in vain, but a woman, you can say you're even a man who fears the Lord, 
that's an inside out. Uh, I'm going to give you a passage. I'm not even touch on it today, but I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Okay. And I'm going to read the passage to you, but I want to spend some time next week because I really want to walk through this with you. And I think it's so profound with regard to what Stephen has in this, this glow about his life. And it's what the Lord wants for each and every one of us, but it's one passage of scripture. And I promise you, if you will just dove deep into this one passage of scripture, you will have a greater comprehension of how to achieve that younger looking skin, you might say. And I don't mean this just from a beauty secret, but really from the inside out. And it's Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And I'll spend some time next week and we'll walk through it. So I'll give you something to look forward to. It says, but we all with, un and I'm reading this from the New King James Version, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I want you to think about that because I've been sharing with you the emphasis in the book of Acts isn't on what the apostles did. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the apostles, right? And Stephen isn't an apostle. And so when you think about that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, when it says, just as by the Spirit of the Lord, okay? This glow that Stephen has on his face is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit who lives within him. And it's the Holy Spirit. Like you said, he doesn't even necessarily understand what's taking place. Just like Moses, he didn't know that his face was glowing. Sometimes people look at you, let's, you can look at people, okay, what have you been up to? Your face says something. But there was this beautiful thing that Stephen had this peace. There was no fear standing before these men. There was this deep peace that came from intimacy with God. It came from a deep personal love for God and a reception of God's love for him. Because you can say, I love God, and people oh, I, I love, love God. God, and they're all angry, and you go, but wait, 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 have, are you really comprehending how much God loves you? And I can't think of a better way to end a service thinking about that than with communion and thinking about from the inside out that Jesus, he didn't just come to take years off your life. He came to give us eternal life. Amen. A life without end. And it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what he's done for you. And if we could all leave here today with a greater comprehension of the forgiveness of God and what he's done for us, our lives would be a lot more peaceful. They'd be a lot less fearful. We'd quit being anxious about all the things that we'd realize that God, he's got it all under control. I don't need to control anything. What I need to do is just learn how to let go and let God, right? Trust him, walk with him, enjoy him. Cause he's going, I'll be with you. Whether, like I said, the 23rd Psalm, whether you go through the valley of the shadow of death, that's not just for people dying. It's just whatever you go through in life is to know he's there with you. You don't ever have to go it alone. And that was the promise that Jesus made to us. And that's what brought Stephen comfort is that understanding that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So whether you're 
going through a great season, whether you are suffering, whatever it is, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Stephen understood that, what a difference it made in his life. And when you and I understand that, what a difference it'll make in all. Let's pray. I'll invite those that are going to pass out the elements. Go ahead and come on up and we'll receive communion here today. Father, thank you for this time as we would end our service and be able to share in communion today. As we take this bread today, be reminded again, not just your love, but your forgiveness. That God, you were forgiven because of your blood that was shed for us. We don't have past sins any longer, just the memory of them. And it's that memory that either drags us back to become repeat offenders or, Lord, it's your forgiveness that truly sets us free, that we can become everything that you want us to. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you that, Lord, as your word says, from glory to glory. So we understand it's a process. Sanctification, being cleansed, Lord, being washed, being set apart is something you do day by day. And so, Lord, may we draw close to you today. May we appreciate you afresh today. May we thank you, Lord, and praise you and adore you for all that you've done and all you continue to do. And to know that, Lord, you'll go with us from this place today. Lord, may that knowledge show in our face. May it not be the fear, the the bitterness and the anger that's associated with this world, but just a freedom that comes in Christ, that people could look at us and they just go, man, what, what is it? Why are you so at peace? Why are you so calm? Why are you, and you go, because God's in control and he's with me and he's in me. And it's not just for the elite. It wasn't just for the apostles. It was Stephen was just a, man, just a, a guy who God loved you and you loved him. We're all candidates, Lord, if we would open up our heart to you, if we would all look in the mirror today and receive, Lord, all that you have for us. Help us to see Jesus, Lord, in this moment. Thank you for communion. Use it to minister to your church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.